Okay, so, um, yes, I'm hailing from the very windy at times state of Oklahoma, and we're coming into the tornado season. So um, a little bit later on this evening, I've got to get into the shelter and clean it out because uh, no doubt we're going to have to use it at some stage. <laughs> now, my topic is the Fellowship of the Mystery, and um, it's been some time that um, I've really come to appreciate the wonderful truths concerning the revelation of the mystery given to Paul the prisoner. And, um, of course, it's been on my heart, really, to think about ways in which um, I could really tell other Christians um, about this and what would be the best way. And it's very hard. It's a very hard thing to do well. Uh, when you think about the expression found in Ephesians 3.9, the fellowship of the mystery, which, by the way, is... Um, not the way that it will be found in some of the modern Bibles, because the Greek text from which they uh, hail is uh, different from that from which the King James comes. And that would be the word oikonomia in the modern versions, which translates as dispensation, the dispensational mystery, which actually works very well for our case. Um, but I'm not in a hurry to take on board something that perhaps might bolster our case if, in fact, the writer did not use that word. And so I'm interested in trying to come to terms with uh, the text of the New Testament, and I'm sticking with King James. Over here, um, uh, let me just move this on a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about preliminaries. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the great truths that I think we've all come to appreciate here at Truth for Today mm -hmm. is the fact that you'll find a twofold ministry of Paul. As you move from the Acts to post-Acts, you find that there is some sort of demarcation which has been crossed. And uh, what I've done up here is I've, um, uh, I've got... Paul written for Acts, and then I've got Paul again, but this time with an AU, capitalized A, to represent gold. Gold. And uh, gold is a great thing. Um, the thing about gold is, though, there's such a thing as fool's gold. And uh, some people who um, teach dispensational truth want to put both the Acts and the post-Acts ministries of Paul together. And they try to say, well, there's really no difference going on here. Uh, when really there are some great differences. These are demarcations. These are things that point out uh, uh, change in administration of God. And uh, so I have, I have found in my own studies that uh, to understand... Uh, Paul, the prisoner, and his ministry is really a, a, a thing of gold. Now you might say, well, Paul was gold in the Acts when he was going to the Jew first. Well, yes, that's true. It's very true. But man, isn't it something else when uh, Paul says, speaking to me as a Gentile, that I have a hope in the heavenly places? as opposed to a Gentile dog under the table. 
I think that's a pretty big thing. And uh, for me, uh, I see as a Gentile this wonderful truth of Paul, the prisoner, and the ministry given to him. Now, let me just try something here. Okay, so here I've got a piece of paper. And um, we all know our passage um, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing uh, the word of truth. Now, the word is a verb um, which comes as author to meko, and it comes in the text as a participle. So, this is the participle, rightly dividing. And you can see it's come, it comes uh, from the two parts. One here, you can see uh, orthos, and the other comes from the verb temno. Temno. And authors, well, write temno to cut. And right, well, you can find right coming into our English language as rect, as in a rectangle, rectangle, right angles. And so a rectangle's got these four right angles. And then if you were to cut this, you would automatically divide it. So to cut something, to straightly cut it, is to divide. So basically, rightly dividing is not such a bad translation. People uh, want to argue against it and say, well, no, it just means rightly handling. Well, it's the same idea. The basic idea is to correctly handle the word of truth, but it's kind of nice to see that uh, even in the etymology of the word, there is implied a division. Whenever you cut something, there is implied some sort of division that takes place. And I think that's important to see. So, what we find is, in the Bible, um, as you move through the book of Acts, you find that Paul's written these seven epistles. And the neat thing about recognizing that is the fact that those seven epistles, they work with the book of Acts. That is, their context is found in the book of Acts. Now, when I say the book of Acts, I mean the book of Acts right to the period, the full stop. Acts 28:31, full stop. So I'm quite emphatic about it. I believe that that's what it means to say that Paul wrote in the book of Acts seven epistles. And these epistles, as much as I can discern it, are put in the order here, Galatians being the first one, and then ending with Romans. So it's kind of interesting to go to Romans then, if you, uh, if you believe with me that Romans was Paul's last Acts epistle, then it's kind of neat to see what Paul says, for example, in his last Acts epistle. 
and uh, maybe we can do that just uh, while we're there. If you, go, if you just go across to uh, Romans chapter 1. So I'm trying to set the stage uh, for this study. We're talking about this idea of the fellowship of the mystery, and with the idea of a fellowship is something that is in common, something in common. And, um, you know, when you have a fellowship, a great fellowship will build around people who hold things in common. And the more things you have in common, the stronger the fellowship will be, and of course the other way works as well. If you have a divided uh, fellowship, well, ultimately the fellowship will break. And that unfortunately will happen, and has happened. And one of the reasons why some fellowships break is because they do not understand and have not come to dig into this issue of right division and then all come to the fellowship of the mystery, the fellowship of the secret. And with that recognition comes tremendous fellowship, which uh, uh, I think is the puts us into a position of being more obedient as a gathering. Now, we can talk about our individual obedience, our individual work as Christians, but there's such a thing as a work which is corporate. How can we function as a corporate body? And understanding the fellowship of the mystery, I think, is one of the ways in which we can really move together and uh, embrace each other in doctrine and move forwards and uh, make a difference in our society. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But anyway, in Romans chapter 1, verse um, 1, <laughs> good place to start, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. So he's a called apostle, and he's separated unto this gospel of God. Now look in parenthesis, immediately after this, it says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Man, if this doesn't set the stage for what he's doing in the book of Acts, I don't know what does. It's not the revelation of the mystery, but rather the gospel of God, which was promised by whom? By his prophets. Where? In the Holy Scriptures. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's a pretty straightforward to see that. Now, if you agree with me that Romans is going to be the last epistle written during the Acts, then there's no need for us to go back to see the revelation of the mystery. We can do it, of course. And if you come down here to Revelation 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And I think that's an important thing to see, that right through the book of Acts, if you trace Paul's ministry as he moves through his journeys and how the Jews treat him, 
he would go to Thessaloniki and then he'd go to the synagogue there and what would happen, they would throw dust up in the air and rip their robes apart and uh, of course he would then have to leave. He'd have to leave and what would he do? Well, he would certainly see the Gentiles in the local area but when he'd go to a new geographic area, he would go to the synagogue. He would again go to the Jew first. And this is the program. This is what he did. In other words, what we read in the book of Romans is what we see in the book of Acts. And why do we see it in the book of Acts? We see it in the book of Acts because Romans is an Acts epistle. Now, you might say, well, big deal. Yeah, it's massive. This is one of the big eye-openers that came to me as a Christian who was totally deceived, man. Totally mixed up. Why? Just never had opportunity to hear anything different. And that's the way many Christians are today. And so what we need to do is we need to be sensitive to the working of the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit opens doors in front of us, we better be careful to move through them. So as you go through here, you find some wonderful truths about all this. If you go across to Romans chapter 15, and verse 8 it says this, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And all of a sudden, what we have Paul doing in here, is showing how that the inclusion of the Gentile, which was certainly part of his ministry in the book of Acts, was prophesied. Isaiah prophesied it. Jeremiah prophesied it. Amos also and as you read down through here, it says this um, in verse 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you also are full of good goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Wait a minute. What gospel of God? Didn't we read that in the first couple of verses of Romans? That the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost all in compliance with what the prophet said. And so we find the inclusion of the Gentiles, and for some people this is a confusing thought. This is a confusing thought because, well, Paul is going to the Gentile as well. Yeah, but he's going to the Jew first. And he's going to the Gentile in compliance with Old Testament prophecy. And as you, you read down, uh, it says this, um, in verse 26, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem, 
it hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their spiritual things, right? Their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Yeah, they had a responsibility to look after the Jews, because they were taking part and eating of the fatness of the olive tree. And it says, When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. Ah, interesting, right? Spain is on the map. Spain is a place where Paul is intending to go, and what does he want to do? Well, he wants to go by the Roman assembly and be empowered by them to go on to Spain. Therefore, there is in the mind of Paul a further missionary journey, which is, which is not part of the one, two, and three. It's to come. It was a part of his intention, and he makes it known here. If you just go back to Romans 11 with me, and in verse number 23, And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature. Oh, this is an unnatural graft. Don't get all high about this, you Gentiles. You've got an unnatural graft put into an olive tree, into this good olive tree. And it says this, How much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be graft into their own olive tree? That's to come, my friends. That's going to come. Don't be high-minded, you Gentiles. You've got an unnatural graft. You are the, the bad one stuck into the good one. It usually goes the other way around. Okay? And your purpose was to provoke the tree to fruitfulness. That was your function. Now, I'm not saying there's not other functions of the Gentiles being dealt with? Of course not. The Gentiles were important to God. Why do you think it's the, the case of Jonah was sent off to Nineveh? Why? Because, of course, in the mind of God, the Gentiles always had a place. But in this specific point, God is using this unnatural graft to reach out to the Gentiles. These are important things, man. This is rock and roll, man. This is what I needed a long time ago. And I never got it. So, okay, so this is the context there. And if you go through these seven epistles, what are you going to find? You're going to find all sorts of stuff, man, about um, signs and wonders. The Jews require a sign. Yeah, all of these things are going on. Okay? They're all going on. Okay, if you uh, just move across a little bit further into the book of Ephesians now, if we just cross the, the great divide and we move across to Ephesians, and in chapter 3, you get this statement in verse 1. Uh, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of 
Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Nice man. So here we've got Paul. He is now in a state of being the prisoner. He, he was he was in prison during the book of Acts, on and off, right? And he was uh, basically put in a place of being under guard on his way to Rome, uh, moving right into the book of Acts, chapter 28. But the difference here is that this occurs after all that, and that he is the prisoner of Jesus Christ for this specific ministry to the Gentiles. And then he goes on in verse 2, and he says, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, would. So notice the word dispensation is now on the table. And one of the things I found as a Christian who is beginning to learn and understand some of the issues about the Bible is that many of the Christians who are in the pulpit preach a real deception when it comes to dispensational truth. They want to put it off into this uh, idea of great heresy, never listen to dispensational truth, it's just made up by Darby, etc., etc., etc. Don't listen to that. Yet when you come to the scriptures and you see how the word is actually used, then as a Christian, you're going to have to be very, very careful about listening to any preacher that tries to push you away from dispensational truth. Now, I'm not saying that every time someone uses the word dispensation that they're right, but let's get the meaning from the scriptures. And he says in verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Now, he says here, uh, in a parenthetical thought, as I wrote a four and few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Ah, so the mystery and the mystery of Christ are somehow associated. The mystery of Christ has been a development all the way through the pages of the scriptures. Why, when we today talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, you notice that word Christ is right there which means the Anointed One, the Messiah. Have you ever thought about the fact that we, who are members of the body of whom Christ is head, we refer to the Lord as the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Something very primitive is in that idea of Messiah, the Anointed One. And it goes right back to the God. And because we ultimately... As human beings, we, we come from the garden. And prior to that, a hope which was promised before the overthrow of the world, still this hope is realized through the anointed Messiah. And he goes on. He says, whereby when you read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, saying, okay, the mystery of Christ has been revealed to a certain degree through the pages of scriptures, but hey, Look at the extent of my knowledge of this. And he goes on, he says, uh, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And you notice it says here, holy apostles and prophets. And I think, uh, you know, we have to be open to learn new things 
as we read the scriptures. And sometimes we make, make up a map, we don't allow that perhaps there's more to this map than we first thought. And that's, that's my testimony, right? That's what I'm talking about, me. And it says here that the Gentiles should be fellow and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, the gospel that Paul's talking about, it relates to the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you could hear this. You could hear it, and you could reject it. Could you be a Christian? Could you be someone who has come to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, you trust Jesus, that he died for you at Calvary, and then when you hear someone proclaim to you the gospel of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which pertains to this manifold wisdom involving the mystery, that you could reject that. Well, it's possible, my friends. In a great house, there are all kinds of vessels. It's possible. It's possible for someone to know the Lord as Savior, and and we both, and all of us, know this to be true. And here, as we keep reading, I'll come back to this passage, I, I want you to just look back at my uh, You can see here, I've got a passage up here, which is 2 Timothy 2, 7 to 9. Okay? And I've got another passage, which is looking at Luke 23, 32. Now, uh, Bullinger was a great study of the scriptures. He's got a great study on the um, the people who were crucified with him. He had two either side of him, and he in the midst. That's five, right? And it's, he's got a great study on that. And of course, the there were two who were known as Kagurgoi. Kagurgoi. These are the evil workers. The evil workers. Now, if you follow Paul's uh, ministry in the book of Acts and his interaction with Roman authorities, you'll find that generally speaking, the Roman authorities, when all is said and done, will basically say, I find no fault in this man worthy of death. Basically. As you find his movement through the book of Acts, and then when he gets into the uh, Roman area, and then comes into the place where he's going to go to jail, he's separated off from the other prisoners, he's given his own hired house, he's able to, to see uh, people that want to see him, etc. Okay, he's a prisoner, but he's a prisoner like no other I've seen. So during that time, he is basically seen by the Roman authorities to be innocent, although, you know, accusations given against him by the Jews. Now, when you get to 2 Timothy, just go across to 2 Timothy with me. Okay, in 2 Timothy and chapter number 2, it says this. Verse 7. Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Now, I find this very interesting because we know this particular book is the sign-off book. This is the 
book which was written just prior to his execution. And he goes on, remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Getting pretty personal here about the gospel, don't you think? My gospel. Wherein I suffered trouble, now here, here it comes, as an evil doer. That's kagurbos. That's like one of those thieves. Not thieves, but evil workers, male factors, that's the word I wanted. Male factors. Here he is now, finally, he's now being seen as a male factor, one worthy of the cross. And it says, even under bonds, but the word of God is not bound. And isn't that true? People can try and bind it, but it's powerful, and it will survive no matter what people do. People have tried to burn it up. They've tried that in China, but the underground church there apparently is just taken off. They've tried that in Iran. But as far as I know from, from many Iranians that I talk to, that the underground fellowship there is strong. But here is a very interesting thing, right? So finally, he is now an evil worker, and Nero can then have the finger put on him, and then he will lose his head right at the end here. And then, of course, some time, not long after this, but not immediately, is when the events of A.D. 70 come in, and the temple is raised. And uh, this is put in a triumphal arch, which you can go and see even today. Okay, so that's really interesting. We find these books, seven, isn't that interesting? Seven, seven. Boy, I bet you that's by accident. <laughs> so what about the, some of the differences? I want you to see some of the differences here. And the first one I want you to look at is I want you to see what happened with Paul when he was uh, moving in the book of Acts and he came to Ephesus. Because that's kind of interesting. We've just been reading Ephesians <coughs> to the Ephesians. So before that event of Ephesians, chapter 3, we read these events. Look at this. This is, um, well, let's go back. I think I'll, I'll go back so I can read the first verse as well. This is Acts chapter 19, verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. So there are other disciples, man. He said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? Well, this is interesting. We've got disciples, and Paul asked them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost? And look at the response. And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. They were obviously disciples and believers, but they had no knowledge of the Holy Ghost. That's pretty wild, don't you think? <laughs> and he said unto them, Under what then were ye baptized? And they said, Under John's baptism. <laughs> Time for an update, friends. Time for an update. A lot of people are not ready for updates. 
they are not ready to learn something new. They're not ready to take what God's provision is for them today. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. Now this baptism here, he's not mentioned anything about the medium. The medium is still water. John very baptized with the baptism of repentance. Now it doesn't mention water in there, but John's baptism was with the medium of water. And then it says in verse 5, when they heard this, now I think the natural reading, I've seen some of the the Mid-Axe-Bereans do some, some tricks with this, but I think the natural reading of this is exactly as I'm going to give it to you now. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. Well, they didn't know about this previously, and now they're experiencing it. Now you notice what Paul did. This is in Ephesus. Laid his hands on them. And the Holy Ghost came on them. And they spake with tongues. These are languages. And prophesied. These are prophecies which are messages which come from God. This is supernatural. This is not all. And they pulled out their handbook of languages and read out some Persian. <laughs> no. Not at all. This was supernatural and prophesied. Look at verse 7. And all the men were about 12. Well, isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's just by chance, right? Just like there's seven before in the book of Acts and seven after, right? Twelve here. What's this all about? Obviously, this is pointing to Israel. And look what it says in verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. Relates to the prophets and the apostles that brought this message of salvation in Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, their hope was a kingdom hope. That's what it was. And they had miracles and all sorts of fantastic things going on here. Now, if you go across now to the same um, epistle, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 6, look what it says here. Uh, because I might want to get a bit of context, um, what I'll do is I will read a little bit more here than what I've got on, on the slide. So 2 Timothy 1 and verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers, with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy, when I call to remembrance, now look at this in verse 5, this is actually mentioned before, um, and it says, The unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded that in thee also. So this here is this unfalsified faith, man, 
lineage. And he was persuaded that it dwelt in Timothy also. It says verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up, stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. Well, we've got a reference back to the past when not with Timothy, but with others, disciples, that when Paul put his hands on them, they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. And here he uses this interesting word, which is translated stir up. You can see it here. Anna zopurain. You can see zo to live, pur fire again to rekindle, to bring again to life a fire, right? That implies it was there previously. To rekindle it means it was there previously. And now some wind is being blown on it and it's being rekindled. That takes work. That takes work from Timothy. Timothy is being told to rekindle this. It's not going to happen automatically. It's going to be something he has to perform. Whereas over here, in Acts 19, the Spirit came on them and they spoke with tongues and all of these things happened. When you come across to the book of Ephesians, let's, let's have a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Find Ephesians 4. So what am I doing? I'm trying to show you some distinctives about how things have moved as and changed, and I'm trying to give an update. And this is in Ephesians 4, and verse 11. And this is a great portion of Scripture. It says this, just after this parenthetical thought about the ascension and descension, and verse 11, and he gave some apostles... And this is, these are some of the gifts that he gave to men. And he gave some apostles. Question. Have you got any apostles today? Are they, am I an apostle? No, I'm not an apostle. I don't see any apostles here. Prophets, no. But here, look, he gave some apostles. And some prophets. And some evangelists. And some pastors and teachers. And it says, for the perfecting of the saints... For the perfecting of the saints. The word here is katatismos, which really means for the readjustment. It's when you you get the verb using often with uh, you know mending of nets. And here is this perfection, which is taking place of the saints. Now I'm going to give you something that I think is true, but I can't prove it's true. Okay? This is what I think is going on, because this happened in history. So get this situation. You have people who believed in Jesus Christ the Messiah and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had a special hope which was as overcomers in the New Jerusalem and they were looking forward to all these things. And then what happens is Paul, <laughs> that is with the capital A, the gold, Paul, comes along and he says, now wait a minute, I want to tell you about something I have received from the ascended Lord. And this relates to a new hope, man, new hope, in the heavenly 
places. It's something which relates to a manifold wisdom of God and a secret purpose that was hid in God. None of the prophets knew about it. Isaiah didn't know about it. Jeremiah didn't know about it. Amos didn't know about it. And I'm telling you about it. Well, what's going to happen? Well, there has to be an adjustment, my friends. I've got a picture here of a chiropractor. They used to be known as quacks. <laughs> I don't think they're known as quacks anymore. Because, well, they're quite effective. If you've ever had one, I've, I've had occasion to need a chiropractor. And I'll tell you what happened to me. I fell off a cliff. Believe it or not, crazy me. As a young man, I fell off a cliff. It was about 30 to 40 feet high. And it had ledges on it, the beach below. And I just bounced from ledge to ledge and went slamming into the beach below. Fortunately, there was some sand. There were rocks also. Thanks to God, didn't land on the rocks. landed on the sand, otherwise I wouldn't be here. And I broke my collarbone. And I was about four months in this figure eight bandage thing. And But I had headaches. And so I went off to a chiropractor and was one... Adjustment. Click. 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 One of those adjustments down my spine and all the headaches went. They all went. Well, they needed an adjustment. And these apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, they were used for the perfecting of the saints. Now, the, the apostles and prophets form a foundational ministry. And they're not here today, but we still have some prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. We have them today. And they can be involved with an adjustment, not in this, quite the same way, not in exactly the same way, but in a similar way, quite similar. Because there are people like me who have been given a certain confused teaching from the book of Acts, and who need to be straightened out. Click. Click. <laughs> right? And we need these people. And we've got to be prepared to give it. And we need to be able to give this teaching clear and straight, man. <laughs> That's what we need to do. If you look, for example, in the book of Acts, at baptism. I mean, I've got so many slides here. I'm not even getting where I'm supposed to get. I'm off on a rabbit trail as per usual. <laughs> <laughs> but notice in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians 1, 16 and 17, so I say that, you know, I say in the, box, in, in the book of Acts, and then I refer to 1 Corinthians, because of what I said at the beginning, right? This is part of the Acts ministry. And it says this in verse 16, And I baptize also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptize any other. It's not very important to it, right? But he did baptize. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Ah, very interesting thing about Paul's gospel that he's preaching. Right? Didn't involve the, this baptism. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Why do we learn? Well, we learn something about Paul's distinctive ministry during the book of Acts, and in the way that he preached the gospel. But we also realize that he did baptize. He did. He said he did. Right? He did baptize. And if you go through right to Acts 19, you find a rebaptism in the context with the 
putting on of hands and the, and the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues, etc. When you come to Ephesians chapter 4, what do you find? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Where is this? This is in chapter 4. This is in the practical part of Ephesians. Ephesians is divided into two parts. The first three is the dispensational part, the heavy doctrinal part to do with the things to do with the revelation of the mystery, and then chapter 4 through 6, that has to do with the deportment. How do you then live? How do you then live? Well, that's an important part. Let's not, uh, let's not put that aside, right? He says so. And then in Colossians 2, it says this, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Buried with him in baptism. Let's just look at this, and I'll finish with this, because I realize my time is gone. And so let's just go across to Colossians, because I just want to get this in a little bit better context, because this is where Paul does talk about baptism in some detail in prison. And it says this, uh, verse 10, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Stop. We're complete. It's no surprise that there's not going to be any of these ordinances that we have to be put under that are associated with Israel. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made Without hands. Well, this is a pretty different circumcision if it's made without hands. This has got nothing to do with the circumcision associated with Abraham. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. It's a spiritual work, of course. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are, ra you are risen with him through the faith of the Operation of God, God the surgeon, God the healer, God the physician, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you some trespasses. <laughs> no, all trespasses. That's our complete position. That's our baptism, our one baptism, which is done by God who is the operator, who is the one who is the completer and finisher and perfecter in Jesus of our faith. Well, as I say, I've only gone through some of these, my slides here. I wanted to get a little bit more into the things that differ in this idea of this, uh, this idea of having something in common and how big that is in our deportment, how we can really build on the things that we have in common uh, and uh, make that available to others around the world. Okay, thank you.